I like woke up this morning and I'm like, we gotta, I gotta have this conversation with somebody <laughs> and like Bill's the perfect person, so. Welcome to Climate Papa. This is a show about climate change, technology, and parenthood. Hi, welcome to Climate Papa, a show about the intersection of climate change, technology, and parenthood. I'm Ben Idelson. I'm based in Seattle, and I invest in product-led climate companies. And I'm a papa to two kids, a five-year-old girl and a two-year-old boy. And I'm here today with Bill Clarico. I reached out to Bill this morning somewhat urgently as I was trying to process what was going on with the fires on the East Coast and connecting that to my relationship with the fires over the last couple of years and my kids. Bill, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Bill Clerico. I'm the founder and managing partner at Convective Capital. We are a wildfire-focused venture capital fund, a $35 million fund that invests between $1 and $2 million at a time in the seed stages of what we call fire tech companies, technology companies that can impact wildfire. Before that, I was the founder of WePay, which was a, an early payments and fintech company that was acquired by JP Morgan. And Home for me is San Francisco, although I spent a lot of time up in Mendocino County, just north of SF, and I have an 11-month-old who turns one year old on Monday. Oh, happy birthday to your soon-to-be one-year-old. Yeah. Congratulations to you on one year of parenting. Thanks. Yeah, we made it. <laughs> it's been so awesome, and I think also just puts, as you think about climate change timelines, it puts yes. them in like stark perspective. Yeah. I guess first, before we get into the fun and technology and our careers and all that, what is your one-year-old up to these days? Yeah, he's he's learning to express himself physically, vocally, crawling, almost walking. He's got a couple words. He can talk to our dog, who he calls Pup. Um, doesn't quite have data yet. I know where I am in the packing order. That's okay. <laughs> the dog comes first. Uh, yeah, but he's he's awesome. He's been just such a gift to my wife and I. We just loved our first year of parenthood. You're traveling right now? Yep, he's with us here. We're in Boston visiting family for a few weeks this uh, the summer. Okay. And how was the flight out there? I actually had a work meeting, so I had okay. to go separately. But okay. my wife, who is a total trooper. How was her flight out there? Uh, I think it went fairly well. You know, we, we tried to time it with naps and we, I think, had a lot of activity and roamed a lot, but, but ultimately they got through it, which is great. We found that like before, I don't know, nine months is pretty easy, right? You can like strap them in or hold them in and they're like, don't really, not really aware of what's going on around them. They're not like socially that interested in the people behind them. And then two years on has gotten easier. The in-between, yeah. like essentially one to two, they're like, I don't really want to watch a show and I don't want to stay here. I want to <laughs> talk to the people behind me and I want to run up and down. Last <laughs> summer when he was seven weeks old, we drove from San Francisco to Boston in our oh, wow. van, which was a true adventure. But to your point, it was actually pretty easy. He just slept the whole time and we did our thing. Yeah. You are in Boston right now. Are you, how's your air where you are? What's going on with the fires? Yeah, yeah. As we said, a large smoke plume over the East Coast of the United States. Here in Boston, we had it two days ago. Yesterday, it was in New York. Today, it seems to be really centered around Washington, D.C. I think different folks gotten to experience that firsthand. I think what's different about this event relative to other events is that it's kind of rare to have that type of air quality on the East Coast, to protect, right. particularly over these like really major metropolitan areas. And so I think that's really been a giant wake-up call for people that maybe historically haven't 
had that firsthand experience that we that we sometimes have out west. And I think there's the it seems always have like the intellectual experience where you're like, oh yeah, I read the news. That sounds really rough over there. Like I understand scientifically it's bad for people's health and it's an inconvenience. And then experiencing it is this whole other level and experiencing it with kids. Or we were in San Francisco in 2017, October 2017, my, and that's when we were pregnant with our first. And my wife had to like make sure people kept the door, the windows shut because we were researching all about pregnancy and the risks of welfare smoke. And, just, and then, of course, the time period where it hit during COVID on the West Coast and in Seattle, this was in summer 2020, it was like the low point for many people was that moment. And I think especially people with kids, because then their kids were stuck inside going crazy. Totally. Being outside that summer was the way to get through the COVID summer. I don't know. Totally. Yeah. I remember for me, like it was September of 2020 was like that big red sky day. in San Francisco. And I remember I was on like a Zoom call with like my boss at JP Morgan and a couple other people on the team. And they were mostly in New York. And I like was trying to explain to them what was going on. And I just turned the camera to show outside and you could see the streetlights were on and it was still dark outside. And I was trying to explain and I literally, my voice cracked because it was like, it was just like really emotional. There was something about like that feeling of such an intense smoke and darkness that was like, sure, there's lots of science and we can talk about science too, but it was like a very sort of emotional, personal moment for me. That was one of the moments that pushed me into starting Convective. What were the other moments? The other moments were we had a, a buyer. So we have a cabin up in Mendocino County in the Anderson Valley in a town called Boonville. And our cabin is six miles up a dirt road on the ridge. And it's really awesome, a rural setting. My wife and I really love it up there, as does Sully and the dog. But we we had a 90-acre fire at the base of the road. It was called Peach Fire. And so 90 acres in the scheme of wildfires is not that big of a deal. But when it's on your like sole access road to and from the property, huge deal. Yeah. pretty big deal. Yeah, we weren't there at the time, but seeing it, thinking about it, and then driving past the burn scar a couple of days later really brought it close to home. And for me, that was like, Climate change no longer became this like far off boogeyman. It was like literally in our backyard today, impacting our family. And, you know, that was, that was another one of those moments. And how has your relationship to that changed? I imagine only intensified since becoming a father. How would you articulate the shift from the 2020 moment of reacting to this? So yeah, the moment you're in now, where you literally are there with your son, with the air quality. Yeah, I think certainly it's like, bad today but i think the really concerning thing for me is like the trend and the second derivative which is it's bad it's getting worse and it's getting worse at a faster and faster rate those are like three really bad things and and you extrapolate that okay over the course of my life i'm 37 you know okay over 40 the next 40 years i'm gonna feel the impacts of that think about my son sally who like hopefully will feel that over his 80 years of of his life and where that puts us into, uh, you know, the next century. And that's well into all of those really scary forecasts. And so I think that I don't want to look at him 20 years from now and have him look at me and say, what did you do to, to try to stop this? A, a, sort of a real sense of obligation, in addition to just wanting to try to make it better for myself and for him. There's this graph that I actually shared on Twitter today that NASA put together about forecasted air quality factoring in the most likely climate trends. And it basically shows that like in the 2060s or 2070s, the average air quality all year long will be equivalent to September of 2020, which was like a really nasty event that we were just talking about. That's unfathomable. And yet 
we can't look at that and just be like, just because we can't fathom it doesn't mean it's not going to be that, right? Yeah. We have to actually take it as that wake-up call to say, this is the projection based on, I don't know, I need to dive into the underlying paper and model, but that is the projection and we have to do something. Otherwise, that is our best model of what it's going to be. Even if we can't fathom it, it that doesn't make it not true. Totally. And you know, wh whether or not the model is perfectly accurate or not, it's probably not. Yeah. Like, I think it's probably a very reasonable assumption that these trends are going to continue to get worse and we will have equivalent or worse days to 2020 at increasing frequency. We continue to not treat this problem and not address you, know, you already get that sense from an individual perspective where people talk about wildfire season, right? As though it's, oh yeah, this is the time of the year when we expect this. When 10 years ago, we never talked about wildfire season, even in, oh. even in most of California. I guess a couple quick last points on the meta science or physics of it that maybe you can help catch me and, and others up to speed on which is like, how do we think about these seasons and events relative to the broader climate change? A couple of thoughts. I think first is just wildfire and climate are very interrelated, right? A warming climate means longer, hotter, drier summers, which certainly exacerbate wildfire. But there's also this sort of like negative feedback loop where wildfire also releases tremendous amounts of carbon. There's Research estimates that wildfire is about 5% of global CO2 emissions, which is like a huge amount. It's like more than Russia, to put it in perspective, yeah. or more than the entire U.S. transportation sector. It's, it's in this, it's this negative feedback loop where warmth causes, or climate change co it contributes to fire, then contributes back to climate change. So that's the bad news. I think the good news is that I actually think fire is solvable without without solving having to solve climate change. There's very specific interventions we can make and do that can interrupt that cycle. And so I think in terms of the levers we can pull to actually address climate change, like we can reduce extreme wildfire like pretty dramatically, I think over the course of 10 years. And I think it's one of the fastest, highest impact places that we can do, that we can invest to, to reduce carbon emissions. And there's a bunch of other causes of it as well, not just climate. I guess it's like click a little deeper on the kind of like physics of addressing wildfire. So if you, I don't know, if we were to go back to 20 years, maybe you could argue, I assume 20 years ago, we wouldn't say that they were at this level of wildfire, you know, sure. acreage burning. Yeah. Is there like a, is there a place where you hope to get to? I guess maybe if we're going to pre-climate change era, so if we were to go back 300 years or something, how do we talk about in, in your field, like the base kind of amount of, of wildfire that we think is the correct amount? And then how far off are we from that base? And I don't know, just help to help conceptualize the scale of this. Yeah, it's interesting. Fire is really a natural part of much of the landscape. Like it has been for many millennia. It was, there's natural causes, lightning and things like that have caused it. But then indigenous people use fire to manage the land for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And, and the nice thing about that was high frequency, low intensity fire. If you burn the same landscape every five to 10 years in the right conditions in May or in June and not in August or September, you can actually control it, control fire. You burn grass and shrubs and you know, brush without affecting mature trees. And you end up with a very like resilient landscape that's like shaded. It has really large, large trees in it that can store, that store a lot of carbon and that are actually quite fire resilient. And so that's the natural state. Starting a hundred-ish years ago with colonization of the American West, we just basically interrupted that cycle. We basically stopped indigenous people from using fire to manage the land. As the timber industry came online and as settlements popped up, 
We started to see fire as the enemy. We invented the U.S. Forest Service and the and Cal Fire as early sort of origin organizations, and they adopted these like a very aggressive suppression policies to put out fire. The fire should be less than ten acres and contained by ten a.m. the next morning was the rule. So and that, like, lot, so a lot of that, to be clear, I wasn't like a lot of that was to protect this resource. It sounds which totally. was timber. I'm, yeah, I happen to be on a kick of wanting to learn a lot about timber. Not yeah, sorry, fire related. I think this is a nice intersection, which is just yeah. Like, I didn't know the British government really cared about the Northeast timber stock for building mass. It was like an important uh, yeah. defense element where totally. that, would help, that would help them build the ships that they needed. Yeah. So anyway, so timber was this like fundamental resource that was really valuable in totally. the colonies at the time. Yeah. And so fire and was viewed as like a risk to the resource. Exactly. We interrupted that sort of natural cycle. Mm. And so the density of trees on the landscape and the fuel on the landscape just exploded. We removed all the really big mature trees that shaded out everything else. And we let lots of little small spindly trees that are highly flammable come back. And so there's like estimates that like the forests in the West are actually like three to four times denser today than they were historically. Like historically, people think it might've been 40 to 50 trees per acre. And now it's 200 and 200 to 250. And it's that is a massive difference uh, in, in terms of just the flammable landscape. So we have that all happening. Plus the climate's getting hotter and the seasons are getting hotter and, and we're getting warmer. And then we went and strung hundreds of thousands of miles of high energy metal through it all. Yeah. And then we went and built a bunch of houses and put people in harm's way. And so it's all that really came together only in the last 20 years. Not that we never had big fires before, but all of these factors combined. Yeah. Does this fact create the frequency and intensity of fire that we see now. And we're now really can no longer be suppressed or controlled when it starts in the wrong conditions. And that's the crisis. It's like it's a little bit of our own making. It's like that spring that's just big suppressed. There's so much potential energy in the landscape now that it doesn't take very much to just release all that energy in these very destructive okay. events. Okay. Thanks for walking me through it. Okay. So to go back to you then, you're sitting there, you're having Orange Day, you're working at JP Morgan after they acquired your last company. Had you spent years in the Forest Service? Were you like, no. did, were you a firefighter? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. What was the movie I, that we all probably watched as a kid? It was Backdraft. Backdraft. That was probably, <laughs> was that like the sum total of your education? Tell me how you got from, because that wasn't that long ago. We're talking about 2020, yeah, right? By no means am I like a dyed in the wool forestry or fire expert. I think I've always had an interest in emergency services. When the opportunity presented itself to, we had that fire on our access road. I went and started volunteering with the Anderson Valley Fire Department as a volunteer, not as a, by no means a veteran firefighter, very much a rookie. Generally, my job was to like hold the stop sign at like traffic collisions yeah. and stuff like that. Exposed me to the inner workings of the system in a way where it just further piqued my interest and got the technologist part of me thinking about like how better tools could really help solve this problem. Well, when you looked around, did it feel like the people, you know, working on those front lines or thinking about these problems, do they have tools? Do they have old yeah. tools? And, yeah. What did that look like? I think the, the people that are like volunteer in rural volunteer fire departments are like hugely committed. Yeah. Their volunteer fire departments are not like resource. They have trucks and apparatus and stuff like that. But in terms of software or tools, not very much. There was a volunteer on our, in our department that actually wrote an app called Incident Responder mm -hmm. that basically was like a way for us all to status our availability and like communicate who was responding and receive pages and stuff. But this was like 
side project. And it's a phenomenal piece of software, but it is just it so happened that we had someone who had those skills on our department. And I think it shows there's just not, it's not like there's like huge systems that like these departments run on. It's all a little bit different in each place. It's like, and so that was like opening. one of the first moments where I was like, started to get really curious about how you could change that. Okay. And then, and from there, what'd you do? So from there, I started writing some angel checks. So I was just like, Hey, I'm going to start investing in companies and just personally was writing some small checks into different businesses. I think I also, as I started to talk to like experts in the field, yeah. I realized that depression was important and fire departments are important, but there's also like this whole piece around landscape management and this whole piece around community resilience. Yeah. It's like equally important and all is also very under-resourced from a technology perspective. And so it's kind of more, kind of more like significantly under-resourced, right? Than suppression. Okay. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, talk about timber, the state of the art in timber is to do a timber inventory, you do what's called cruising. You go walk around and you count the trees and measure the trees. And then when you want to go cut those trees down, they paint it and it's a very manual process. That's great and it works, but there's ways to make that process a lot more efficient. And more accurate. Remote sensing, using LIDAR, using cameras, all kinds of stuff. And so I think just as I started turning over these rocks, I just started getting really excited. I'm like, there's a lot of like economics at stake in terms of property values and timber and insurance and utility yeah, sure. liability, but not a lot of founders building stuff. And so that was, I think, where I started to catch some dots and that, okay, maybe I could, well, I thought, oh, should I start a company? And then I was like, maybe I think it's actually a portfolio of companies that need to exist here to solve this problem. I think those of us that have spent a lot of time in the software industry, like at first glance, you just, you just presume that the way it works is the way it works. And these things can't be radically improved or radically changed that there's even like appetite for new technology or it just feels like a esoteric market that is like how do you even get into that i'm curious what your mental model is of that is around that and how to help people understand and ramp up and say no there is a lot here yeah that you can wrap your head around and and a lot of parallels to things that the tech industry has we were both in fintech which like people used to say this about fintech back in the day right Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, when we were, when I was starting at WePay in 2008, like everyone said, this is like highly regulated. The banks control everything. The only successful company in fintech ever has been PayPal. And that was an outlier. That was common wisdom. And I think if you listened to that, you would have missed like the most attractive venture sector of the last 20 years. And so I'm always really skeptical of like common wisdom. And I think common wisdom in venture right now is Hardware is hard. Government tech doesn't work. Long sales cycles of like utilities, how many utilities and insurers don't work. So like anytime I hear that, I think there's some truth to it. You got to understand it. But if you're willing to look to the next layer down, that means there's a lot of really untouched opportunity because that common wisdom has scared so many people off. And also, I don't know, I guess for me, like everyone talks about being a first principles thinker and like from first principles, what do you value? Probably your house not burning down. Yeah. Probably like the ability to go outside and breathe the air. So how, yes, you might be like, okay, what's the market for this? But fundamentally you think about what we care about, not just from an impact perspective, but like actually we value it. Totally. People will move if they can't live there, which will maybe again, this will ripple through the insurance industry as it is in California right now with the State Department. Yep. I believe Allstar also just announced that they're pulling out of California new new insurance yeah. deals. Yeah, there's like yeah. massive economics at stake here in terms of $2 trillion of real estate that have like, moderate to high wildfire risk. 
PGD lost $80 billion of market capitalization because of the campfire, the CEO got fired, they went through bankruptcy, they got fined $25 billion. Yep. These are not like small, trivial insurance industry losing $15 billion a year to wildfire. These are not like small numbers. So I, I guess from a product perspective, you mentioned three categories of suppression, resilience, and there's one other. Yeah, landscape resilience and then community resilience. Okay. So that sounds like one framework. And I think I understand suppression. I think I understand landscape resilience. What does community resilience mean? Yes, community resilience is, and the term people use is a fire adapted community, which basically means like, how can you have a community that can coexist safely with fire? And so that means things like hardening homes to make them more defensible, having the right programs in place to trim vegetation, building fuel breaks, doing evacuation planning, having appropriate and healthy insurance markets. It's all the things that people need to be safe in the context of, of wildfire. And so it could be building materials, could be planning software, it could be all kinds of ways to think about how do you make communities more resilient to fire. Okay. So let's say somebody is popping their head out of a, a kind of traditional tech company and, ah, should I go, should I go work on the latest AI stuff, which is exciting? Or is there something I could do? Because I'm like breathing the smoke. Maybe I'm in New York right now and I'm like, okay, yeah. I'm energized. What do I do about, what do I do with that energy? What would you... Is there a way that you'd have them think about the landscape of problems? And I assume there's both companies that you funded that you're excited for people to come join. So we can talk about those. But also, yeah. I'm actually very interested in the things that like no one is scratching at yet that like big categories that just need people to dive in and think about. Totally. I think there's lots of ways to think about that. So the sort of problem space is what, one framework which we talked about. I think it's really interesting to take that problem space of landscapes, communities, and suppression and intersect it with what are the proven technologies that have been applied to all kinds of other industries, but have not yet been applied to those products. Whether it's drones, AI, fintech, there's lots of ways to think about the application of like very proven technologies to these problems. And if you just connect those dots, it's like a very fertile space to think about idea generation. The other lens to put this on is, okay, so you build some cool stuff by intersecting those two problems. Like who pays you for it and what's the business model? And there, there's big groups of buyers. So there's utilities that have tremendous liability. There's the insurers, which also have tremendous liability. There's public safety agencies, which are actually reasonably well-funded around this. Cal Fire's funding has almost doubled year over year. There's $5 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act for wildfire mitigation. Like there's stuff working its way through the system that makes government, I think, a better buyer of, of technology than they've ever been before. I think the timber industry is a buyer. Real estate owners, whether that's a private homeowner or a business owner, are all buyers. I also think the hospitality industry is a buyer. You think about people canceling vacations or people or hotels burning down. Like it is a really disproportionate impact on, on the hospitality industry as well. So, is that because the hospitality industry tends to sometimes be also like more invested in places that have additional wildfire risk or just that their business, like a homeowner can like, I have to deal with this week of wildfire season. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going to go yeah. get some air purifiers, but a hotel is like, this impacts the bottom line in a way that I can't stomach. Yeah, you think about New York is one thing, but if you had that, if you had a trip planned to Lake Tahoe and yeah. the EQI is 400. You're not going to go. You're not going to go. And whether that's you're going to rent an Airbnb or stay at a hotel, that's, that causes like massive vacancy across those properties and customer service issues and refunds. And how do you think about travel insurance in that context? How do you think about insurance for the, for the hotels themselves? So there's like the air quality impacts, I think, are quite big. 
And then there's just like the direct fire impact. You think about the Napa or Sonoma, the meadow would burn down, a fair number of other hotels burned yeah, down. Right. Hotels have very expensive facilities that largely really can't be fully insured against fire risk either just because it gets too expensive. And they also just have these like big assets that need to be protected as well. Right. Which are worth Okay, so maybe about. if we go through, I, I think it'd be at least fun and you maybe yeah. done this a bunch, but I haven't thought nearly about it from the kind of the product lens that you have, which is let's take FinTech and apply it to these different categories. It's like, you need to find new ways or improved or easier ways to invest in improvements, right? That maybe aren't happening yet. So what's the buy now, pay later for this home improvement or this community improvement? The company I want to see get started there, yeah. uh, been talking to its founders about this, is insurers today, they really think about their business as like setting rates. It's about risk yeah. transfer, right? I buy a risk from you and at, at this price. It's very hard to make those rates work because... They have to price using 30 years of historical data under the regulations, but that doesn't accurately reflect the expected losses going forward. And so they're really in trouble. And that's why people are leaving the market. But what if instead of that being the only lever on their business, they actually thought about taking some of this capital that they have and investing it in mitigation and yes. saying, hey, we're going to lend you money to put a new roof on your house or to build a community fire break or to put gutter guards on your house or new composite shingles. I think there's some really interesting ways to make that pencil. But it just is going to require the right team to go figure out how do you go convince insurers that's a smart way to invest money. But like yeah. that, to me, could be an enormous company. That yeah. is really interesting. It's underappreciated how much insurers have all this float. And like, I, I think this hit me and I don't know if you ever listened to the Acquired podcast and they did the whole Berkshire Hathaway series and like just understanding that like, oh, Berkshire Hathaway is two companies that kind of feed off each other. There's this like yeah. insurance company that generates all of this premiums that are going to be float that then can be invested in all these operational businesses that throw off cash, this this kind of flywheel. And yeah, the more that it even compounds more interestingly, if the insurance company is spending that in a way that drives down the risk, okay. right? Do you want to buy treasuries at four and a half or 5% or do you want to cut your expected loss by a third? Yeah. It's way better to do the latter. Yeah. Have you watched uh, Kettle at all? The reinsurance company? I have, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think super highly of those guys. They're one of the first tech companies to really think about Reinsurance model. Yeah. Okay. So that's one big area of fintech. Let's talk about drones. Yeah. So we're investors in a company called Rain, which is building autonomous drones for wildfire suppression. I think that's wow. one implication. Yeah. One of the one of the really interesting things about autonomous drones and suppression is you can catch it early. You have a chance of putting it out before it gets too big. And one of the only ways to really get there fast enough is to have distributed aircraft that could respond within minutes. So not launching tankers from central bases and wasting time getting there. And so you could see a world where there's rain aircraft installed all over the place on the roof of a fire station in every town. And in doing so, you can dramatically catch ignitions sooner. So that's, I think that's one application of autonomy. There's also just more straightforward things like doing better power line inspections or using LIDAR to better scan trees or Creating situational awareness. So it could uh, be drones or it could be ground transport. It could be little autonomous vehicles that drive through a forest and a timber company totally just as these or pays to use these that would do a better assessment. Totally. Yeah. Or yeah. Or even autonomous forestry equipment, which is right. a lot of time gets spent dragging those logs up to a landing. And could that be automated? Yeah. Could you increase efficiency there? And there's some companies working on stuff in that space. But I think there's massive opportunities for efficiency. Okay. And then... Generally, AI, machine learning, it applies to all these things. And but are there particular ways in which you think 
if one is excited to go work with those tools in, in those spaces to be like, okay, let's apply that to the fire problems. I think AI can be applied in a number of ways. I think predictive analytics is one. How can you get more accurate weather forecasts? How can you predict fire behavior? That has really big implications. Applying AI to imagery, so to be able to analyze whether it's video to detect fire or satellite imagery to increase fuel analytics or tree analytics or even fire analytics. Another related area that actually I think there's a founder that I might have sent your way around all, if we think about all the forest land in the U.S., we need a plan if and then a model for how that plan would play out in these different situations. And I think it's a fascinating problem to think about just like how you manage that process. I, I don't know as much about this as, as, as probably you do around who cares about seeing those plans, what's the format of them, how do we group them together and create an, a, a holistic understanding of what what the kind of forestry plan is so that we can say, okay, this is where the risk is and then back to financing. Okay, let's finance like an improvement. Like, Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like the U.S. Forest Service is a huge responsibility there as do like different states and private landowners. One of the really big impediments to that though is NEPA and CEQA compliance, so it's the, the various environmental regulations. Okay. And you require to submit these really detailed plans. So one of the things that's actually pretty cool, one of my partners at Convective is Ilya Volodarsky, who is one of the founders of Segment. And he's starting a nonprofit called wildfires.org. And they have a partnership with the U.S. Forest Service to help, they're calling a turbo plan, like TurboTax, but for NEPA compliance. Yes, so like yes. the forester can say, check boxes, input into a software tool where the plan is going to be, and it just generates the report, the text and everything like that. And it takes what's normally a several month process of compiling all that information and makes it like a 20 minute answer some questions, get what you need, That's um, which I think is super cool and a great application of technology. And that segment team between Ilya and Peter Reinhardt, like some, something is right from that, yeah. like, from analytics on your website to, right. to helping us on client. Um, yeah. It's a great flow of talent into the problem space. Totally. Cool. Those are all really interesting areas where people should look at the existing companies that you work with and think about companies. If someone wants to go a level deeper than this conversation on your world, what's the best way to, to do that or to talk to you about what they're thinking about now that they're more activated than ever after this week's terrible yeah. smoke. Uh, I'm like, I'm always happy to chat with people. I'm on Twitter at Bill Clerico, or people can send me an email. I'm just bill at convectivecapital.com. And always happy to chat with people that are starting to think about this problem. And some people say that, but they don't mean it. But I just messaged Bill and that's when we connected last, maybe a couple months ago when I was ramping up into broader things in climate and building a fund. And then I pinged you again this morning. And I was like, we need to talk about this because it seems like an urgent moment where people are People are trying to figure out what they can do. And I think it is overwhelming when you feel like you don't like, I mean, first of all, tactically back to kids and keeping your family safe, obviously read the recommendations and invest in air purifiers and do everything you can. And then don't think that you can't affect this problem just because maybe it doesn't feel like in your path to work as a firefighter, especially if you're listening to this, especially if you're in technology, this is, this is what Bill's now doing after decades completely not in this space. And I just, I don't know, I think it's so encouraging and inspiring to see that you're able, you're at the beginning of such impact on this massive, not hypothetical problem, but very real pressing thing that I hope other people take as an example and can follow your lead. Thanks. Yeah. I think we just, we need more like smart, committed people working on this. And I view very much my job as an investor, but also with like an evangelist for talent. I'd love to have more people in this world. Whatever I can do to help and make it easy for people or to provide on-ramps, I'm 
Totally happy to do. Thank you, Bill. I hope we did some of that today. So I really appreciate it. Well, that's a wrap on episode three of Climate Papa. Thanks again, Bill, for that conversation. I'm not intending for Climate Papa to do a lot of covering of immediate news like this. But just like Bill, I remember how this smoke affected me and ultimately motivated me in moving faster to do work on climate. When I posted earlier today about the fires, a friend reminded me of the Joan Baez quote, that action is the antidote to despair. And I think that's right. First, please keep yourself and your family safe. And then once the smoke literally settles, think about how you want to help shape the next 10 to 30 years. And please let us know if you're finding these conversations valuable. If you think more people should listen, send it to them. And I'd love to hear from you. Stop by climatepapa.com anytime and drop me a, a note. Lastly, our intro music is by the amazing Balkan Bump. Take us out again, Will. On we go like...